Camp Director Benjamin Green liked the morning. Specifically, he liked 5.15 a.m. because even though he knew that there were people in the world who had gotten up before him, he still felt good knowing he'd gotten up earlier than most, and was therefore better than most. His therapist, Felicia Goodman, says that this has a lot to do with a the burgeoning inferiority complex, but even more to do with the plain fact that for most of his life, Benjamin Green was a very late sleeper, and that after his recent life, life reset, reset, Benjamin Green has had to find new ways to define himself and find discipline. And it was in said life, life reset, reset that Camp Director Benjamin Green had made up Felicia Goodman in the first place. He hadn't told anybody about her because he knew the first question they were bound to ask was how much he was paying for 45 minutes. And he knew that it was too much to pay a therapist, let alone one that was imaginary and therefore didn't have to worry about things like an office or car insurance. But anyway, Camp Director Benjamin Green liked the morning. And for a few minutes, he felt good. And then that all changed. A single shot from an M1 carbine pierced the air above Camp Fletcher. And then Camp Director Benjamin Green remembered everything. And he knew exactly who to blame. The morning of two days until opening was when Camp Director Benjamin Green really started to get worried. For in a few hours, Larry Jamison, Linda Carmichael, and Ted Yoderman, Camp Fletcher's aimless yet cheerful steering committee, would be sitting across from him in the Terran Noah Smith Memorial Dining Hall. They would eat lunch and talk. Larry would make some off-color remark about one of the female counselors he'd seen walking in. Linda would fall asleep and start to snore, her mouth hanging wide. And Ted would talk about how the, the country, country is going, going to the to dogs. The dogs. About how that Shanice has a really great voice. And about what, what a remarkable, remarkable man our Bud, Bud Dwyer, Dwyer had been to work, was for. to work for. And Camp Director Green would have to remind himself that he liked his job, and that this was just one of the few unpleasant things he had to put up with. Because we all have petty annoyances in our lives that we would rather do without. And Camp Director Benjamin Green was no exception. It was one particular annoyance who took the form of a six-foot-seven, red-haired beast of a man that had him so concerned on that bright morning in late May. How's the little guy doing? Who? Henry. How's Henry doing? Well, it's actually been kind of difficult, to be honest. Like, at the end of last summer, he set a latrine on fire, in his words, so that the campers would have something interesting to look at for a change. And I mean, did the campers enjoy it? Sure. But the safety concerns... It came seriously close to setting the whole forest mm. on fire. As I'm sure you know, Brett, before you got here, we had quite a time keeping a hold of camp directors. Sure, they would start the summer all full of joy, but would end it running through the woods, sobbing, screaming something to the tune of, Mankind is doomed and we should all just give up now. And each time, 
Henry stepped up and took charge, which is why I think the two of you get along so well. Come now, dear boy, and answer my question. How is Henry doing? What Camp Director Green wanted to say was that Major, Major Henry, Henry Warrington, Warrington was making his life hell. hell. Which, had he any confidence that detailing for the umpteenth time how unqualified the Major was to be a counselor would actually affect any change, he still would have had difficulty saying out loud, as the concept of hell was one he had been frightened of for a very long time. For you see, he was a devout atheist, but knew that while death was indeed the end for most people, there was, there just had to be, a special place even worse than non-existence that was kept burning for those who truly deserved it. And the Major deserved it, and imagining him there was one of the few pleasures the camp director counted as his own. After all, Benjamin Green had tried in his first two summers as camp director to reason with Major Henry Warrington, and when he discovered fairly quickly that the Major was both above and beyond reason, he tried to terminate him. For he had assumed, perhaps somewhat naively, that since his contract had staff termination as not only a sentence, but the heading to an entire paragraph that few questions would be asked as to the firing. And yes, he'd even submitted several SR-6B termination forms to the P.O. Box in Slimsville, New York, where all official camp documents were to be sent. And then he waited. And he waited. And he waited. The next spring, when he breakfasted with Larry, Linda, and Ted, he brought up the Major, who had not been let go, and in fact had been given a raise and a reserved parking space for a 1989 Ford Taurus that he does not own but like to talk about nonetheless. Major Henry is a fine, upstanding young man. I don't think there's any need for termination. I'm sure he'll listen to you if you just talk to him politely. He's a but fine, the camp director upstanding had talked, young and man. And he had been extremely I really polite. Don't think there's any need for termination. But as often happens in life, nothing changed. And on a rainy evening in early August, reeking of dog shit, camp director Benjamin Green finally gave up. Make no mistake, Camp Director Green was no pacifist. None of the Greens, dating back to Big Papa John Green, had ever backed down from a fight. Ever. Such anti-pacifism made each subsequent generation of Green feel more and more ambivalent towards their parents and preceding generations. Sure, they were grateful to exist, but at the same time were deeply ashamed of their elders for having survived long enough to procreate. For, as Big Papa John Green had been fond of saying, the cowards come back and march in parades. The good ones come back and say nothing. And the heroes die on the battlefield. As a side note, Big Papa John Green never had any children, never fought in any war, and was apparently less than four foot four inches tall. It's therefore unclear where the name Big Papa comes from. Maybe it was ironic. Although camp director Benjamin Green contends that they hadn't invented irony then, so that probably wasn't it. Big Papa died when he was 24 from complications with a porcupine caribou. The complications were that it ate him, and all they found was part of his left shoe and a novelty life of Riley necktie. His family disputes that the necktie was his and maintained that the feds must have planted it there. Legend goes that the only person Big Papa hated more than pacifists and Republicans was William Bendix. Camp Director Green hoped that the Major would see their agreement, not as abdication on the Camp Director's part, but rather a truce. That the Major would limit his pranks so that they would only inflict harm on the Camp Director in private, 
I actually had a contract drawn up that said just as much, even used the word pranks. In retrospect, it was a poor word choice, as pranks would seem to imply that there was a modicum of youthful fun involved. There wasn't. And while many words can be used to describe Major Henry Warrington, youthful and fun he is not. It is to this day unclear whether the Major understood the agreement. What is clear is that it didn't really matter, because if anything, his aggressions got progressively worse. And in his deepest, darkest moments of despair, which were growing more and more frequent despite Felicia Goodman's insistence that he was improving, Camp Director Benjamin Green wondered if the Major was punishing him for backing down. Like that demonic laugh crying coming from the woods last night, thought Camp Director Green as he burned his tongue on Camp Chef Stephanie Lee's scalding hot coffee. What the heck was that? Well, he knew what it was, or like the gunshot earlier that morning which he preferred not to think about, who it was. It was clear that the Major had truly gone insane. And if he, Camp Director Benjamin Green, didn't already know how the steering committee would react, he would have immediately gone to Camp HQ and called the Slimsville Police Department, because it was clear that people's lives were in danger. And the thunder clouds of doubt move in, I begin to wonder, do you still love me? But after that, my whole world is beautiful, remarked Ted Yoderman as he... Camp Director Green and Linda Carmichael descended the steps of the Terran Noah Smith Memorial Dining Hall to begin the steering committee's inspection of camp. The camp director was hopeful. Today was different. For in years past, Linda had had a bad habit of falling asleep in Camp Chef Stephanie Lee's slop sink. Today, however, it was Larry who passed out in his plate of tuna fish macaroni salad surprise. And because he was too fat for Stephanie Lee to fit in the sink, she did try. He was left on his back, spread eagle on the floor of the dining hall, sawing logs. After Seamus Humboldt, the blind car mechanic, tripped on Larry's left foot and sent not only himself but three gallons of pig saliva flying across the hall, Stephanie Lee placed a yellowing-orange traffic cone on Larry's stomach and then went back to her damn crossword puzzle. She was a responsible shop steward, thank you very much. Camp Chef Lee used to have one of those signs that says, This work area has been accident-free for X number of days. But it was lost in the fire of 97, when the Beverly Mitchell Memorial Dining Hall and Funtown Fun Complex slash Bowling Alley burned to the ground. The inspection began at the waterfront, because Linda had demanded it so. She liked boats, or at least she said she did, However, there always seemed to be something standing in her way, sometimes literally. In his first year as camp director, Benjamin Green had offered to take her out in a rowboat, and she had accepted, not because she particularly wanted to spend the afternoon floating in a tinfoil dinghy, moments away from drowning, but because he had offered, and while Linda Carmichael might be many dully regrettable things, she was not the kind of person who turned down offers. The camp director stood on the dock, vigorously sweating off all of his SPF 80, and watched a veritable nor'easter slam into the inside of her skull as Linda tried to seem enthusiastic and calm while actually being paralyzed with fear. There were just so many things she had to do before she could get in the boat. First, she would have to go use the latrine, you know, just so that she wouldn't have to go when they were in the middle of the lake. Next, her canteen would be dry, and she would have to go fill it up, but not at the nearby spigot, which she claimed tasted acidic but at the spigot at the John Dewey Memorial Sports Field, on the other side of camp. Camp Director Green had no doubt this could have gone on indefinitely, 
but I reached my lifetime quota of watching 78-year-old women perspire. And so I made up a meeting that I was already late for. That seemed to do the trick. The camp director was not thrilled about the trip to the waterfront. He had suggested everything, anything else. But Linda was adamant. And so there they were. When they got to the waterfront, however, the camp director found that Larry Wilson, director of water sports and pottery instruction, whom he had specifically asked to be there, was not. Nor were the boats, boathouse, dock, watchtower, and other bits of water sports-related paraphernalia, which was a surprise. Linda and Ted walked up to the spot where the watchtower should have been. Benjamin Green knew their reactions would be negative. He was camp director, after all, and as Ted was fond of saying, the buck stopped at him. But he also knew the only thing to be done was to wait and see just how bad of a reaction it would be. It was uncomfortable. Ted considered the scene for a few minutes, and then remarked, There's, uh, there should probably be, uh, does this look right? He turned and nodded meaningfully at the camp director. Mm, make, make a note. And that was it. As the trio walked back through the woods, Linda said she was feeling kind of tired and would probably go lie down. She remarked that it was a shame that the boats weren't there because she had really wanted to go out in one and had been looking forward to it. Ted belched, then farted. Macaroni salad surprise always made him gassy. And the inspection continued. As he sat with Ted in the handicrafts lodge, Ted had insisted they stop and work some motherfucking wood, Major Henry Warrington's silence had become loud enough that the camp director no longer felt it was something he could ignore. Because, because something, something had, had to be up. up. Because people don't just change. Sure, he wasn't ready to publicly condemn the major for stealing the waterfront. It was probably Larry Wilson's fault. But that didn't mean that he also wasn't 100% positive that the major had had at least a small part to play in its disappearance. The major's current activities were something that Camp Director Benjamin Green could worry about. And so he did, and did so with the focus of a test pilot who has just done a line of Adderall. So that after a few minutes of intense pain, his mind just sort of shut down, packed up the station wagon, and moved the family to a different state. If a firecracker had happened to explode right in front of him, it is doubtful that he even would have blinked. This unfortunately meant that he missed out on what otherwise would have been a wonderful, relaxing afternoon with Ted Yoderman, full of fun, magical things like turning a large piece of wood into several smaller pieces of wood. The camp director's neck and shoulders giving out, and his head thwacking against the wooden workbench, then laying there, motionless like a watermelon, was something that was hard to ignore. But Ted really didn't mind Benjamin Green's mental absence, because Ted was a firm believer in the idiom, If you don't have anything to say, don't say anything. And in those few hours in handicrafts, felt a great respect and admiration for the camp director's newfound silence. Around 3.45 p.m., Ted began to get hungry, and tired of the toll that the camp director's life choices were taking on the little conversation he tried to make. So he stood up and proclaimed, rather loudly, that this, this lengthy, lengthy inspection, inspection should, come, should to an come to an end, and we should get back to the Terran Noah Smith Memorial Dining Hall so that I can collect Linda and that idiot Larry and head out. But Camp Director Benjamin Green had not moved. Ted did consider leaving him there, he seemed to be enjoying himself, but then remembered that he might need an extra set of hands to help get Linda out of the slop sink. So Ted picked up a 2 by 4 raised his arm above the camp director's head, and... Crack. 
Camp Director Benjamin Green jolted upright and asked Ted what, what kind, kind of wooden handicraft, handicraft would you he would like, like to make today. today. A few minutes later, as they walked down the hill back towards the Terra Noah Smith Memorial Dining Hall, Ted scolded the camp director for not managing time any better. But it didn't matter. On any different day, Camp Director Green would have been mortified, repressed his mortification, and later would have seriously considered resigning as he climbed into a bottle of pear schnapps. But today was different. For although time had literally flown by in the Handicrafts Lodge, badly enough that the camp director had made a mental note to bring it up with Felicia Goodman during his next session, the major had been a non-issue. And so that was good. It looked like Camp Director Green was in total control of the camp, with the exception of the waterfront thing. And like any seasoned manager, he knew that looks truly were everything. When Ted and Camp Director Green returned to the Terran Noah Smith Memorial Dining Hall, they found Larry unmoved and Linda asleep in the slop sink. Her breathing had become shallow, and she had taken on the appearance of a slightly moldy blackberry. It took close to half an hour to rouse her, during which the camp director instantaneously switched to panic mode and was of no use to Larry and Ted as he sat in the corner and grappled with whether or not he should call an ambulance. Larry and Ted took turns shaking her, not because they were particularly concerned about her health, but because if she kept this up any longer, they were probably going to miss the early bird special at Embers. And it was this, and nothing else, that was the topic of discussion as Camp Director Benjamin Green walked the three trustees back to the entrance of camp. As he got in the backseat of Larry's light sand drift 1996 Buick Roadmaster, Ted insisted that not only should Linda make up for the $5 extra their late arrival was going to cost Larry and himself, but that she should really do the right thing and pay for their meals entirely. Larry countered that all she needed to do was apologize, pay the $5 extra, and seek help. And Linda told him to shut the fuck up, that she had always despised them, but had only recently given up worrying about who knew. The last thing that the camp director heard as the car drove away from him was Larry inquiring in a shout who it was that had smoked in the car when he had explicitly told them that they couldn't. For about a second and a half, Camp Director Green thought this argument curious, as he was positive that not one of the three members of the steering committee smoked, as the simple act of breathing was already something that each of them struggled with. And then he breathed in, coughed, and discovered that the air tasted like garbage. The first thing that Camp Director Green noticed when he rounded the corner of the Terran Noah Smith Memorial Dining Hall was how quiet everything was. He hypothesized that, as often, often happens, happens with, with fog, fog, the smoke had a dampening effect on the sound. The actual cause for the silence, according to Gil Herman of Local 401, was that, due to the level of smoke in the air, working conditions for the cicadas and bullfrogs had become too hazardous, and they had all walked off the job. As shop steward, Gil filed a grievance with the union office in Slimsville, but expected little to come of it, as the office was hopelessly overwhelmed with paperwork that dated back almost 20 years to when the Beverly Mitchell Memorial Dining Hall and Funtown Fun Complex slash Bowling Alley had burned to the ground. The second thing that Camp Director Benjamin Green noticed was the outline of a large, burly man sitting in the gravel about 10 feet away from the dumpster brand dumpster, watching it. He wanted to close the lid on the dumpster brand dumpster, grab a bucket or a fire extinguisher, put the fire out, scream and curse at the burly man in the gravel for coming this close to starting a forest fire. Then, in the silence, he heard a sniff, and for the first time in his rather sheltered life, 
the camp director had to deal with the devastating realization that every person has their own unique reality and that no one else will ever really understand. The camp director walked over to the major, but he didn't scream or shout. In fact, he didn't say a word. What he did was think long and hard. Then he raised his hand, and after an extensive internal debate about the pros and cons of doing so, finally placed it on the major's shoulder. Several weeks later, the camp director would find out that the major's 16-year-old chocolate lab, Beatrice, had died that morning. The fire in the dumpster brand dumpster was for her. She had been doing all right until about a fortnight before, when her kidneys began to fail and both she and the major began to fully come to terms with the fact that an end was coming and was pretty close. Sixteen years is a good long life, said Major Henry Warrington as he and Beatrice walked down to the John Dewey Memorial Sports Field that morning. Beatrice agreed. She told him that it was okay. She was done in this life, but that she would see him in the next. Then she smiled, which, given her general lack of facial muscles, was difficult. Major Warrington appreciated this. The sun had just begun to rise over the Dewey Dewey Memorial Sports Field as they reached its center, then stopped. Beatrice vomited a little, then she ate the vomit. And that was all it was, all it had ever been. Just a man and his dog watching the sunrise. And so what if the dog was wise beyond her years? And if the man wanted to have faith in the dog's beliefs, but didn't? For many years he had tried, but had eventually given up. And just told her that he believed. I love you, he said. And she smiled again. A single shot from an M1 carbine pierced the air above Camp Fletcher. Bug Spray is written, directed, and produced by Scott Gooden. Featured in the cast are Spencer Kennard as the camp director and Martin Pohl as Ted Yoderman, with music composed by B. Norman Clager. Special thanks to Dana Gooden, Doug Gooden, Mary Gooden, and Angela Juarez. This is, of course, a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner, or possibly both. Visit bugspraypod.com for more information. Or is it bugspraypod.com? Bugspraypod.com. Ah, who cares? <laughs>